0: You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast, brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. A break from our regular programming for this special episode, Raven's Reviews.
1: I love what you have in your background. Oh my gosh, I love it. With the like. Oh, yes. Wow. Wow. Thank you. I'm
0: such a forward thinker that I'm like, well, if I ever do use the video of it, obviously I have to have something up behind me. So <laughs> I just schedule way too far ahead in the future. Most of my guests are like, I don't even know what I'm doing in that month, so.
1: (laughs) But I think that's how you managed to do, like, over 100 podcasts. And congratulations on being on the front page. Thank you. That, I still don't know how that happened. Really?
0: But I'm okay with it. Yeah, right. (laughs) I'm all right with that. You're like, anytime. (laughs) No kidding. I was actually very, very surprised. I was like, well, I must have, I must be doing something right, so. Definitely. So, welcome to the Sirens podcast, where today we are doing a special episode of Raven's Reviews with a very special guest. She is a law professor, an innocence litigator, a former federal prosecutor, and founder of the West Virginia Innocence Project. And she's going to talk to us about all of that. And her new book, Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women reclaim Their Rights. It is
1: Felina Beatty. Yay! I'm so excited to be here, Raven. Thank you. Thank you so much
0: for being with me today. I have probably way too many
1: questions. Oh, I love it. Awesome. I'm glad you found it so juicy. <laughs> I did. Yeah, um... Well, and
0: because you talk about so much stuff in this book, like you do talk about one specific case, but we're also talking about how that relates to all of these other cases, I guess you could say nationwide. Let's see. We start with manifesting justice. You you do kind of explain this, but I want to let you kind of touch on that real quick.
1: Sure, uh, and I'll just give um, a brief background of the story for uh, anyone listening out there. Okay, uh, so um, the story is uh, storyline of this is based on two of my clients in Mississippi, and it starts with three women who all meet at a drug rehab center in Mississippi, uh, and two of those women fall in love and they complete their program uh, and they leave and they take their new friend Kim with them. So all three hit the road. Uh, And sadly, in less than 48 hours, uh, Kim has taken uh, prescription OxyContin pills uh, and alcohol and she overdoses. So our two women who fell in love, Lee Stubbs and Tammy Vance, uh, they see that their friend Kim is overdosing, they uh, call 911, an ambulance comes and takes Kim to the hospital. Uh, and Kim is in a coma. Uh, and, you know, it's not certain whether she's going to pull through or not. And in a bizarre twist, uh, the doctor, the emergency room doctor, thinks there might be uh, some indicators of um, sexual violence. There's like some paddle marking on her um butt and some redness in her vagina. And he calls in a dentist <laughs> to examine this woman.
0: This is the part in in this that I was like, I'm sorry. Did she mean to say dentist?
1: <laughs> I know. It goes off the rails. And from that, it, it just, it goes crazy. It goes crazy. Um, the dentist... Uh, alleges that he finds bite marks, and who could have bitten this woman except for the two lesbians well, who were with her. and it wasn't just that he
0: found bite marks. It was where he supposedly found the bite marks. He is a dentist. Yep. And he should not have been in the area. And she was she was in a coma at the time unconscious so who is letting a dentist do this like
1: what was the reasoning that they gave for this you know i think it was just part of the investigation i've never that's so crazy It is crazy. But, you know, uh, the dentist who came in, Dr. Michael West, is notorious in Mississippi for uh, causing other wrongful convictions as well. So he happily finds bite marks wherever he is asked to find them. I'm just now making this connection. But I feel like I
0: saw some sort of, like, documentary over him I believe he was in this documentary Mm -hmm. yeah okay and so we have like all of these other experts saying that doesn't make any sense what he's saying and he's like so adamant that this is how you do it this is how you obtain it and you know if you're not doing it this way then and it's just so wild to me because today isn't bite mark kind of, is that like junk science today? Yes.
1: Yes. It's uh, actually almost everyone recognizes that it is, as you put it, junk science. It's bogus. It's unreliable. Even people in the field uh, admit that it is unreliable. And yet our courts still allow bite mark evidence in. So it's really whether the prosecutor is going to use this kind of expert or not. And they really shouldn't because... It's just so completely unreliable. Um, and I wish I could show you, Raven, I have photos of bite marks, actual um, confirmed bite marks, and they often just look like a red blob. Right. Like, well, how would you know what dental mold matches to that? Well, it's whoever the suspect's dental mold is. Right,
0: and even in this whatever it is I was watching, they were saying, you know, it it's the, the human skin is so squishy you know um in 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 common terms i guess it's so squishy that you know (laughs) and it goes through all of these changes and everything from the time that you know said thing happens to death to after death like there's all these Mm. changes that happen like how could you even
1: exactly and Dr. West came up with his West phenomenon, where he uses a blue light and says, oh, with my blue light, I can see bite marks that no one else can see. Oh. <laughs> and if anyone's interested, um, the documentary about him is The Innocence Files. Yes. Uh, and it's Levon Brooks and Kenny Brewer, uh, who were wrongfully convicted in Mississippi Thank by you. his bite mark evidence. Yeah.
0: Thank you for remembering that for me. <laughs> Tell me, I'm going to jump, I, I, I don't want to give too much away because I know you spent a lot of time pouring this into your book. I want people to get out and read your book. So I don't want to give too much away about, you literally go into some of their backstory. You go into um, the trial, obviously, the trial itself. Tell me about the part where you... Came into contact with them? How did you find them or hear about this case for the first time?
1: So, I was a, just to rewind a bit, I was a federal prosecutor in DC and I left that job to join the Mississippi Innocence Project. Uh, and I tell a bit about why I did that in the book. Right. Uh, but I joined the project and Uh, Lee and Tammy had both written to the project and their moms who persevered and persevered uh, would regularly call the project and ask about us taking the case. Uh, So the Mississippi Instance Project, which had just opened uh, like two years earlier, uh, they decided to take the case and uh, I was assigned to it and just dove right in. Are there sort of like, protocols on what you look for in a case in order to
0: take that case on?
1: Yeah. So most innocence organizations, and there's about one in every state, uh, and they make an innocence network. Uh, so most innocence organizations have an application that needs to be filled out uh, and then a screening process of how you go through those applications. And you also usually have a backlog of many applications. Uh, but in looking at her case, um, looking so we represented Lee Stubbs and then found someone else to represent Tammy Vance, the co-defendant, and uh, looking at her case. The mamas had uh, already requested um, some documents from the FBI because they thought the FBI might know something. So we were already on the track of there could be evidence here that we don't know about and that proves these two women are innocent.
0: I actually um, was going to touch on that undisclosed evidence that you talk about. Right? (laughs) I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, sometimes people had stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and they didn't turn it over. Mm -hmm. Important stuff. I mean, this case is so crazy because you have the bite marks, which are totally bogus, and we knew that at the time, too. Right. Uh, So we had other clients convicted by Dr. West and his bite marks. Uh, But then you have, yeah, like you're saying... Evidence that's out there that the defendants never knew about. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how many
0: how many cases do you usually have um, going
1: simultaneously? Post conviction, so all these people have already been convicted, mm-hmm. which means it takes. A tremendous amount of effort to reverse a conviction it just does right you I know mean, you really have to prove that this person didn't do it uh, so it's a lot of investigation and we had um, we had three attorneys at the project and I bet we had about 20 cases uh, total so it you know you can only take on so many uh, because you do such deep dive into them
0: Right. Your personal expertise um, includes wrongful convictions due to gender and sexual orientation. Um, Can you tell me a little more about
1: that? Yeah. So over 70% of women who have been wrongfully convicted were convicted where no crime occurred. It's not a matter of someone else did it. It's that there there was no crime. Right. So those are... um, Well, those are cases like Lee and Tammy. Uh, Those are also like child death cases, like Melissa Lucio, who is uh, on death row in Texas Mm -hmm. uh, right now. Uh, And it goes back to what you said about junk science. A lot of these cases rest on junk science, bite marks, Mm -hmm. uh, fire science, um, shaken baby syndrome, which can be wrong. Um, So... Yeah, it's this real overlap where women are less likely to have DNA evidence in their case that can, you know, 100% exonerate them pretty easily. Uh, But instead, they end up being convicted by junk science where no crime occurred.
0: Whatever evidence that is, is not initially used. Why do you think that is that is it because it's something that's coming in later that's found later um, for the
1: most part? Yeah, so it could be evidence that the prosecutor had that was never turned over Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, exculpates them, uh, but you you don't have access to it and you don't even even know it's there until someone starts digging. So it could be that. Uh, It could be just change in science. I mean, 20 years ago, um, we didn't know that bite mark evidence was so unreliable. Uh, 20 years ago, we believed in some fire myths um, that now we know better, and now fire science investigations are better because we actually know more about fire science, but we didn't know at the time. Uh, So change in science is huge, and courts generally hate this because they're like no let's just stick with the original conviction it's like how can you keep these people in prison when we now know that they didn't do this um so you butt up against kind of the finality that the court's looking for and you do talk about um even more stuff in your book like um
0: mistaken um eyewitnesses which oh yeah, we Absolutely all know. <laughs> we all know how reliable eyewitnesses can be. So,
1: um,
0: and yeah. and even things like witnesses who lie on the stand or lying, you know, police officers who lie and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff like that. So, you actually talk about like all of the you talk about a lot of issues um, in this book. How often do you see this stuff in these cases that you take?
1: Frequently. I mean, it's All the time. Frequently. They're called um, hallmarks of wrongful conviction. And that's another reason why projects will take a case is that they see these hallmarks, as they're called, of wrongful conviction. So like you were saying, eyewitness misidentification, false confessions. Uh, women are also more likely to falsely confess. Uh, and this is also where we get the guilty where there was never a crime, because women will take responsibility or will say, oh, I'm so sorry, or oh, I must have done something, even though they didn't do what was alleged. If they're in this interrogation uh, with a dominant authority figure, a police officer, they'll often just start saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, Uh, I didn't mean to, uh, when they didn't do anything at all.
0: And they take that as, oh, they're admitting that they're guilty right then and right there but one of the big issues is that when you're going through these um these cases to try to get exonerations it's not like they look at these cases as a whole right they kind of piece them out and go well we have to look at this little part of it
1: yeah and I'll just say, I think there are far more people who are wrongfully convicted and innocent in prison than we even know about. Because the only cases that are taken by innocence organizations are where there really is that incredibly convincing evidence of innocence. So if you don't have that evidence, You're out of luck. Yeah. Um, But you're right that each case is individual. So you're going to look at all the different components of each case. And that's why it takes so long to investigate the cases and, and get them reversed. I mean, I've had clients for over 10 years, you know, where you just keep working on the case and working on the case.
0: Tell me why proving factual innocence is usually not enough to... Release an individual.
1: So, this is where the title of my book comes in Manifesting Justice. Uh, and in the very beginning of the book, uh, I put it out there that I think courts should be looking at whether the conviction is unjust rather than just whether the person can prove their innocence. Because right now, it's all, can this individual convince the court that they are innocent? Instead of, well, do we actually think this conviction is reliable? Do we want to uphold this conviction when we know the prosecutor didn't disclose evidence? We know the police officer lied on the stand. We know the eyewitness was mistaken. Uh, we know there was junk science provided. Like, Do we really want to uphold that conviction? and? My argument is to shift from such a focus on did this person prove innocence to is this a miscarriage of justice? Is this manifestly unjust?
0: So then what would be the difference in looking at that and saying all of these things were wrong with this trial? Um, what's the difference in, in, in exonerating someone
1: and saying, well, we need to retry them? The case could be reversed and the person get a new trial either under uh, manifest injustice or under kind of a actual innocence uh, angle. So both ways, even when someone has their conviction reversed because they're you know, actually, quote unquote, actually innocent, they've met that very high standard, which is an incredibly high standard. And again, that's usually a standard met largely by dna evidence Mm -hmm. and most women and women exonerees do not have dna evidence in their case they don't have that golden ticket so even if you have the dna and you show look it was not me it was jim your conviction has been reversed the prosecutors can still rebring the charges and just take you to trial again so whether your conviction is reversed based on actual innocence or miscarriage of justice, either way, the prosecutors can re-bring the charges. Uh, and that's one thing broadly I talk about in the book is prosecutors re these charges when they don't even seem to believe in them. And I say that because they'll re-bring the charges and let's say it's a capital murder case, okay? Death penalty murder. They re-bring the charge and they say, you know what? you can take a plea to assault, to time served, which means you don't have to go back to prison and that'll resolve this case. it's like, if you actually thought that this person murdered someone, why would you say, oh, you know what? Here's a lower plea and time served. You can walk right out the door. You don't have to go back to prison. If you actually think they're dangerous, I mean, why would you give them a time served plea? you know i question those i'm right there with you on that i think like
0: every time i hear oh they were given a, a plea deal i'm like why you think they murdered 14 people were given them a plea? or you know whatever yeah. but yeah but yeah why, yeah right why are we letting them just you know or or some of these um even violent cases that have nothing to do with murder but violent cases that um you see where they get time served or they get a suspended sentence and i'm like Was this not, like, their fourth violent crime? Why are they on
1: the streets, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's a whole other thing that I talk about in the book from being a prosecutor, that victims really still aren't necessarily, you know, given justice through the criminal system. Uh, And I prosecuted domestic violence and sex offenses, and we would routinely drop very serious offenses down to like a misdemeanor because we didn't think we could get a conviction. And then it's like, well, what is six months in prison going to do for this person? They're not going to, you know, reform their behavior. And it, it just, it, it's really uh, tragic that um, our system often just doesn't help victims.
0: Yeah. Um, how often do you actually see the wrongfully convicted see exoneration.
1: Well I can say a lot of wrongfully convicted people do take uh Alfred pleas. So um that's the what we were talking about with the prosecutor before, except they're able to in an Alford plea, um, they're able to continue to claim their innocence uh and say, I didn't do this, but the state has enough evidence to convince a jury, so I'm pleading guilty. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people. And one sad thing is uh, A fair bit of our data on wrongful convictions comes from the National Registry of Exonerations, which is a a great resource, but they don't include people whose convictions were reversed and who then took an Alford plea.
0: Oh, really? I did not know that. And and with an Alford plea, you're getting out of jail. You're getting out of prison. Mm -hmm. However, you still have that on your record. Like, it's... that's it's not going anywhere it's gonna be really hard for you to live your life get a job you know not that it wouldn't anyway if it's something like you know capital murder or something like that you probably have been in the headlines but you know at least you would have a clear record if you have a clear exoneration and not have to take an alfred plea yeah yeah you have um well, you talk about it, obviously, literally everything here you've talked about in your book. <laughs> so, if you want, like, super details, you can go get the book. Um, but you talk about assisting um, people wrongfully on the sex offender registry as well. And something called unnatural intercourse...
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, for anyone out there, the book really does cover a ton of different things. It really does. you may pick it up for, like, women's rights. You may pick it up for LGBTQ rights and wrongful convictions. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You may pick it up for innocence work. So I am a queer woman. I'm married to another woman. uh, And some of my clients have been... Uh, also part of the LGBTQ community. Uh, And um, sodomy, which is, just for folks listening, both oral and anal sex, Mm -hmm. it's both, and it doesn't have to be between people of the same gender. Um, So think about that. Like, (laughs) it's pretty broad. Uh, It is a very broad term, yes. It is, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, So that was illegal until 2000. Uh, is either 2001 or 2003, um, in a case Lawrence v. Texas. Uh, And frankly, it could be recriminalized again. Uh, And the the anti-sodomy statutes were mainly used against gay men. Mm -hmm. Uh, So even though it's very broad term, they're mainly used against gay men. Uh, So if you were convicted of Unnatural intercourse, uh, then you would be on the sex offender registry. So, literally, if you were a gay man who had received one of these criminal charges, they may have said, Oh, okay, well, you won't have to serve time in prison, but we're going to put you on a sex offender registry. Uh, so, for years, we still had gay men who were on the sex offender registry, uh, even though they're I would say their behavior shouldn't have ever been criminalized, and it definitely was no longer criminal.
0: Obviously, you're not just trying to exonerate people who are, who were convicted of murder. It's all oh, right, of these right. other, other things
1: as yeah. well. Yeah, and things that may seem like lower-level offenses, but still really matter, like um, juveniles and sex work. There's not as much attention paid to, you know, juveniles who get prostitution charges or gay men who are on the sex offender registry like there's just even though they can impact many people they don't get as much attention because they're not as severe of sentences and thank goodness they're not uh but it's uh it's much harder to get attention to those cases
0: well they aren't as severe sentences however you are on the national sex offender registry And there's a lot that goes into that, like they stipulate a lot of things about your life once you're, you know, out in the real world again, that when you get an exoneration for something like that, basically that means it didn't happen, right? How about you just explain what an exoneration is for my listeners?
1: Yeah, so an exoneration means that Uh, A court has affirmed uh, that this person did not commit the crime that they had been convicted of. So not just their conviction was reversed, even though that's the first step, but even after that, the prosecution doesn't bring additional charges or the court affirmatively says, okay, you didn't do this. Uh, And that could either be the crime never happened, or it could be we have proof that someone else did it. You got the wrong person.
0: When you get exonerated, now I had talked to uh, Jared Adams. Uh, I listened to that one, yeah. Yeah, about, about his, and like the things that were blowing my mind about it is that basically when you get, well, let's say you get paroled out, okay? You have all these yeah. resources that you're given, you know, to kind of help you get your way back into the world. Um, but when you're
1: exonerated, you, nothing. No. There's nothing. No, you don't have any of that. I know, uh, and I'm. I remember him talking about that, and I'm so glad he did because some people are shocked by that. Mm-hmm. That if you didn't commit the crime, you're just
0: you're sent out
1: the door with <laughs> yeah, yeah, with whatever you got in your pocket, yeah, and hopefully some support because you're not yeah. going to get anything else, yeah.
0: Um, and I, I was wondering when you get exonerated. Do they wipe your your records, or do you have to go in and file mm. for like expungement and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, Raven, that's such a good question. So you generally have to affirmatively uh, get your record um, cleaned, and that can take years. There's a study that came out where these folks looked at people who were on the National Registry of Exonerations, had been exonerated, uh, and they still had a criminal record. Yeah, it was still on there. So when they go apply for a job, you know, and this is two, three years after they've been exonerated, it's still like the looming you know, boss, over them. Right. Yeah. Boss is like, what? You have a murder conviction? And they're like, "No, I didn't do it. Well, uh. I think the problem
0: is, is that, like you said, they just kind of go okay they open the door and let you out into the world they don't tell you anything and so they definitely don't tell you hey this is still going to be on your record unless you go down and and physically Mm -hmm. have someone physically remove it from your record nobody's being told this stuff you get exonerated for something you need to be able to go down and say hey this needs to be gone
1: (laughs) yeah right exactly
0: so do you know of um we were talking about, you know, there's no resources for anyone who's been exonerated. Do you know of any organizations that may help in that way or anything like that, that uh, maybe there are some resources that people don't know about?
1: Yeah. Uh, so there's, um, for example, an organization that was founded by uh, John Thompson, JT and Exoneree. Um, who was passed away, but in Louisiana, specifically for Louisiana, New Orleans exonerees, there's also a, um, life after exoneration, I think is what's called organization in Chicago. That's also for exonerees. Um, so there's a couple of organizations and then this is kind of interesting. Um, there's two exonerees who married each other, Sonny and Peter, <laughs> and uh, they have a beautiful home in Ireland that they invite exonerees to come for you know a few weeks and just have kind of a respite. But they've also started a senior living. Center in Florida. That's awesome. So, for exonerees, because again, I mean, you've served how many years in prison? Uh, a number of these people are pretty far along in their lives, and this is a space where they can live as seniors. Yeah. Many of the exonerees, when they get out, are 40 plus uh, and are just trying to, you know, find a job, live with their family, whatever family they still have, just trying to make it by. Um, so, they're more likely to be living in poverty. What has it been like
0: working with, um, with the Innocence Network in general?
1: It's an incredible group of people. Uh, it's really determined people and the Innocence Network includes lawyers, but uh, also social workers. Uh, so, again, to help exonerees as well, uh, it includes um, journalists, uh, I mean technically the Innocence Network is these individual innocence projects that, uh, you know, are standalone. Uh, But when you think of the innocence community, that includes exonerees who are doing work for other people now wrongfully convicted. Um, That includes journalists. That includes uh, social workers. It's it's a broad community of people. I want to thank you
0: for what you do.
1: (laughs) I feel like I'm just thank you for what you do
0: every day. We kind of skipped a little bit about you I wanted to talk to you about your background like before all of this I'm looking at your resume here this resume. oh gosh boo. it looks <laughs> it looks made up I'm not gonna lie to you
1: <laughs> it looks it just looks busy <laughs> you know you try to jam something on there to impress people <laughs> but I mean it does kind of look like you kind of
0: always knew this was your trajectory. Like this was where you kind of want
1: to go with it. Did you always want to get into law? I definitely always wanted to work in women's rights, human rights. Uh, And um, I talk a bit in the book about being a rape victim advocate in college. And that was huge for me. And that's when uh, I decided I really wanted to go to law school because I wanted to prosecute sex offenses. I mean, I just saw so many, so many people who had been hurt. Uh and I appreciated being an advocate who was there in the hospital helping these people in a really critical time. Uh, but it did make me feel after helping person after person, like, well, we should stop these people who are repeat offenders, right? Like we should stop those individuals from continuing to harm people. Uh and so at that point I really started thinking about becoming a prosecutor.
0: And what was it like being a federal prosecutor? Well,
1: it was a little bit different because I was in D.C. And D.C. is uh, not a state. (laughs) And so the federal prosecutor office does state crimes and federal crimes. They do it all, right? Because they're their only resource. Um, So I did what would have otherwise been uh, in another location in a state would have been state crimes. Uh, And you know, I worked with some really passionate prosecutors who really cared about, uh, violence against women, violence against marginalized individuals. I mean, to this day, uh, if I want to see the folks I want to hang out with in a prosecutor's office, it's going to be those folks, yeah. right? I'm um, like, we're going to align on a lot of values. But on the other hand, I ultimately felt like we were failing victims in what we were doing. And, uh, I didn't think that, you know, the six month sentence was really resolving what caused those violent behaviors in the first place. Yeah.
0: What point was it where you thought, well, maybe you should teach this?
1: Ooh, oh my <laughs> gosh. Well, that was way down the road. Cause I was like, Who am I to be a teacher, right? (laughs) But Uh, you
0: did teach. You co-led the Academy for Justice at Arizona State, right? uh, Yes, yes. Tell me about why you took that job. What made you want to teach and maybe like what classes you taught?
1: Oh, yeah. So um, at the Academy for Justice, uh, where I'm currently the deputy director, uh, but I'm also a professor at Arizona State. Uh, So I currently teach a women, gender, and the law class, which I love. Uh, I also teach criminal law. Uh, I teach a course on wrongful convictions. Uh, I teach criminal procedure, which is about police. So what police can do and uh, what individual rights we have. So after, you know, litigating in criminal justice for a while, I, I really... I was drawn to teaching and being able to work with students, and uh, I love being able to see these students who, you know, just like me years ago, are figuring out what their path is gonna be uh, and learning how they're gonna contribute in the world.
0: Like, I'm always like (laughs) sneaking into your seminars. (laughs) Yes! I just, I wanna learn everything that I can learn, you know? And there's just like not enough time in the day. I like to give um, information Uh, to people like, like an, if this happens to you sort of scenario. So let's say you have been put on trial. You are innocent. You go through your trial and they determine that you're guilty. What's your next move?
1: Ooh, you have to find an attorney to represent you and you have to um, start figuring out how to get that evidence together And you do get an attorney for your like initial direct appeal, Mm -hmm. but that's just kind of like, Oh, what went wrong at trial? But if your attorney didn't actually investigate the case, right. Was, I mean, a common refrain is uh, by a defense attorney would be, Oh, the state has to prove it. You know, we don't have to put on anything. The state has to prove their case. Well, yeah. But then the only thing the jury hears is from the state. Right. So it's, not surprising that they're going to convict if they only hear from the state. Right. Um, so I do think gotta get a lawyer and gotta move fast. Uh, one of the things I talk about is in federal court, there's this statute called EDPA, which I totally think we should change, and it says you only have a year uh, after your conviction is final um, to challenge your conviction. Uh, in federal court. You have one year. So you got to find all that evidence in one year or else they're like, nope. I did not know that.
0: That's not really that much time at all in. I mean, at what point should they reach out to an innocence project somewhere?
1: Right away. Uh, Because again, a lot of projects have a backlog and it takes them a while to work through their applications. So it's important to go ahead and apply at the earliest moment, and then you can always send in additional information to update your file.
0: If you haven't read the book, go get the book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I can just throw out there, I mean, the book talks about a lot of different heavy things, uh, some of which we've talked about today, but... A reader out there could be like my mom, who was just like, oh, I just skipped those chapters. I just read the story. I just read about Lee and Tammy. So there is a good story here that's pretty gripping and pretty salacious. I did really enjoy
0: hearing about these girls' sort of backstories and and what led them, like, to this moment. And then that doctor, (laughs) that dentist, I'm sorry, dentist, and and the bite marks, I mean, we can say where the bite marks, where he says the bite marks were. Um, he had claimed that the labia had been bitten off.
1: Yep, that one side of the labia was bitten off and the other side was chewed on. Chewed, right. Chewed. I was like, how could you even know that? That makes no sense. Right. And there was and no blood. And what does she know about there was no blood? Uh, I mean, there is no evidence that, you know, that, come on, that a woman's like genitalia has been bitten off. Uh, and he's so convinced. He's like, oh, yeah. And
0: there was no point in which they were like, well, let's get a medical doctor in here to
1: corroborate right. this. Right.
0: And so we're just kind of going off this guy's word. And he's not... I mean, he's no labia expert, so... No, no.
1: And, I mean, Raven, as you pointed out earlier, how does he even have access to Kim's body where Kim is completely naked and he's able to, like, tell these nurses, oh, we'll move her body this way, move her body that way? I mean, that itself is such a violation. I
0: can tell you that no dentist of mine has ever seen me naked (laughs) so
1: true (laughs) me too funny enough
0: I mean if you just say that to just a normal person like hey has your dentist ever seen you naked they'll be like what are you talking about no (laughs) so then I mean if you further it and well does your dentist do your medical you know exams of course not
1: no, so then why no. was he
0: allowed access to her entire body? No consent. Mm-hmm. That just blew my mind. And the fact that there was no blood, even, even at the scene, there was no, no blood.
1: None. There was none in the vehicle they were all in together. There was none in the hotel room. It's like No, there was none. And you'd think that, you know... There's a lot of blood flow. You'd think there would be something, right? Exactly. Yes. I wanted
0: to ask you, I just remembered. I wanted to ask you, and I I don't think this was in your book. I think I heard you say this somewhere else. What is a lesbian vampire vampire? Oh, because, thank
1: you. <laughs> because I need to know. <laughs> yeah, um, it's these stereotypes that you know in fiction literature they go back hundreds of years, like uh, about that lesbians uh, bite. You know that lesbians are uh, violent and vicious, and they bite, and they're blood sucking, they're feral, um, and. <laughs> Yes, yes, all of these stereotypes. What was that jury thinking? What was that jury thinking? They were thinking, okay, here are these two women. They've put on all this evidence that these two women are lesbians, Mm -hmm. uh, that they were seen kissing and other people were, you know, grossed out by it. Um, And that the woman who overdosed, her labia is missing. Mm -hmm. So you're like, oh, my gosh. Well, who would possibly ever do that? Who would ever do that? uh Lesbians. A lesbian, obviously.
0: Even up to today, there are people with a certain mindset that, oh, well, they're lesbians, or oh, they're gay, mm-hmm. or, you know, they did it. That's yeah. all there is to it. So, I think there's
1: a real overlap here of, you know, seeing LGBTQ people, lesbians, as deviant, um, as, uh, you know, lawbreakers based on... Their sexual orientation, and that that can correlate to well, sure. I'm not surprised they're also violent, and and we're seeing this spate of you know anti-LGBTQ bills, um, sadly, largely across the South, and it's very emotional. You know, it's based on these emotional narratives of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, if we have stories out there that where people are violent and dangerous and that lesbians bite people um, that ties into that emotional narrative of oh my gosh these are people who are different from us and who knows what they could possibly do right but and really we're, we're just like everyone you know and well,
0: I can say that I have never been attacked by a lesbian <laughs> I have never <laughs> been attacked by a gay person uh, I've never seen them, you know, having sex in the streets. Right. I've never, you know.
1: Uh... <laughs> That's pretty boring. <laughs> Lesbians are pretty boring. <laughs> I will say from my own experience. Oh,
0: my goodness. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I This has been a lot of fun. I'm glad that I get to do something where I get to read books that I was already going to read, like hands down. Oh, and uh, and I get to talk to the wonderful people that write mm-hmm. them. And the way I see it is I get to talk to some really cool people who do some really cool things. And so, again, thank you for what you do. Thank you for taking a stand. Some thank people don't have it in them to take a stand like you have, so... Much appreciated.
1: Um, Thank you very much. Is your Instagram Valena dot? Mm Beatty. And same with Twitter. Twitter's also, I don't know if Twitter has the dot or not, but it's V-A-L-E-N-A-B-E-E-T-Y. Are you on Facebook or no? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I am. Yes, but no? I mainly just use Instagram and then I let it post to Facebook as well. So...
0: There you go. Uh you can find Valina on Instagram and Twitter. You do have a website. It is uh dot Yep. Um go there, learn more. You have all about you on there. Uh, all uh, your your resume. <laughs> Everything that don't you... look at the
1: resume. <laughs> well and
0: and you have um what link Is it where you link your seminars? You have upcoming seminars. You do a lot of speeches and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So that's also on the webpage, um, valinabd.com. So as long as you spell my name right, you'll be able to find me. There's not (laughs) many of us. Perfect. If you want to
0: find more on our end about Valina or find the book, you can go to our website, www.thesirenspodcast.com slash author alley and... Find this book. Aw, thank you. I thank wish much. I could have you here. I would totally make you sign it. <laughs> I would totally
1: sign it. In.
0: This is the only thing that I regret about these remote things, because I'm like, yeah. no one wants to go. No one wants to go to Oklahoma, okay?
1: <laughs> uh, wrong. I do.
0: Well, if you're ever in Oklahoma, you hit me up.
1: we <laughs> Will do. Oh, my gosh. No, thank you. Like, I... Spent a lot of time writing this, yeah. and I just randomly reached out to you and was like, hey, will you let me be on your podcast? And you said yes, so thank you. I, listen, I have a hard time saying
0: no to anyone who says there's bogus bite mark evidence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, oh, yes. she knew how to hook me in. I gotta know. <laughs> and I, like, immediately bu- bought the book. I was like gonna buy that whether she's on or not so (laughs) yeah yeah, thank you so much. much we will see you next time on the sirens podcast thanks for listening to this episode of raven's reviews catch more next time on the sirens podcast Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?